to the end suggests fighting to the end. And ultimately, there is no end. The point is that this is ongoing. And the way the film wraps up, we make that very clear that, that this is not the end of anything. It's really just the beginning of the next phase of dealing with the climate crisis as a society. Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Rachel Lears. Rachel is a documentary filmmaker who directed the two political films, Knock Down the House and To the End. Perhaps you've seen Knock Down the House on Netflix. It followed Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Cori Bush and other female candidates running for the U.S. House in 2018, capturing AOC's upset victory. Rachel's new film, To the End, which is available on February 7th on platforms like Apple and Amazon for purchase, follows the climate change movement and again features AOC, as well as Varshini Prakash, the co-founder of the Sunrise Movement and former guest on this show, Alexandra Rojas, executive director of the Justice Democrats, and Rihanna Gunn-Wright, the climate policy director for the Roosevelt Institute. I really enjoyed the conversation with Rachel, who's a different kind of progressive political entrepreneur, and I think you'll find the conversation well worth the listen. Also, I liked both films. You should watch them. So first my sponsor, then my interview with Rachel Lears about her new film, To the End. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Rachel, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? My name is Rachel Lears. I am the director of the new documentary To the End, which follows climate activists and organizers inside and outside of government for over the last four years, leading to the first major climate legislation in U.S. history. Prior to that, I directed a film called Knock Down the House, which came out in 2019 and followed the insurgent congressional campaigns of four working class women, including Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Cori Bush. Well, I've seen both movies and enjoyed both movies, so I feel honored to have the time to talk to you today. But I wanted to just check in more about that biography before you make these two films. Where do you grow up? What kind of education? What's your path to being a filmmaker? Sure, sure. Well, I grew up moving around a lot, actually. I often get asked if it was a military family, but my dad was a history professor. And I lived in Connecticut, Missouri, Virginia, New Jersey, before I eventually settled down in New York. And now I've, I've been in Brooklyn way, way longer than anywhere else. 
I was one of those kids who was kind of interested in everything. And I did a lot of art and I was very serious about music and photography in college. And then I ended up doing a PhD in anthropology. And in the process of working on that PhD, I discovered documentary film. And I was in my mid-20s at the time. So it was a little bit later than a lot of people get started with filmmaking. The art form really spoke to me and I really fell in love with it because it kind of combined everything I was interested in all at once. I was able to, just with the audiovisual fabric of it, combine cinematography. I had this photography background and I was super interested in the camera and, and making pictures with fr from everyday life with the camera, creating those compositions out of everyday life. There's something very musical about editing film and, you know, the way you're weaving tracks of sound together and the soundscapes. And of course, there is music often in film as well. And there's a, a really strong verbal aspect to it where you're engaging with ideas and feelings. And fundamentally, I was interested in connecting with people in the contemporary world, in the present moment, in people who are doing interesting things and spending time in the field with people in interesting situations. And so documentary film gave me a way to make arguments by telling stories and reach a much wider audience than I would have been able to reach if I had stayed in academia. And so I have these roots in, in academia and the arts, but really I'm, I'm very interested in, in reaching, reaching people of all walks of life, however they might come to my film. So I'm always trying to create films that function on multiple levels that have sort of an emotional arc that can really be appreciated by wide audiences following these characters through their journeys. And then also different layers of sociopolitical commentary or exploration of power relations and the way some of the more complex topics work that I explore in my work. And I should mention, too, I got involved in Occupy Wall Street in, in 2011. That was really a pivotal moment for me as well. I was already a filmmaker at that point, and I was just finishing up my dissertation in anthropology, which was about music and cultural policy, incidentally. <laughs> I got involved in, in Occupy Wall Street in the media group there and in the immigrant worker justice group, and that led to the production of my first film, The Hand That Feeds, which followed a group of undocumented workers at a bakery on the Upper East Side of Manhattan who had a really dramatic and historic labor campaign back in 2012. That sort of launched me on the path of exploring organizing for social and economic justice through filmmaking. It seems like a good path to be following down and pretty fruitful one. You know, it's not every filmmaker, though, that has a PhD in cultural anthropology. How does the what you learn in that field inform your work beyond what you've said? I was doing my doctoral work at NYU, and there's a, a program there called the Program in Culture and Media, which is a graduate certificate program between the Anthropology and Cinema Studies departments. It is basically organized around the production history and theory of documentary. So it's this really interesting intersection of theory and practice, which was already very interesting to me because I was, had been coming to graduate school as a musician studying ethnomusicology and very interested in the in the nexus of, of theory and practice in art. That's where I learned film. So I learned it in the context of contemporary anthropology. This was like almost 20 years ago at, at that point, but a very long history now, almost, you know, at, 
50 or more years of coming to terms with the discipline's colonial history and the ethics of representation that are embedded within that and that that have needed to be challenged uh, over over the years you know uh, so my training is really in a type of non-extractive filmmaking practice that is grounded in really strong relationships of trust built with the protagonists of the film grounded in an ethic of negotiating consent at every step and and having that be renegotiated as the project moves along. Things can change over the course of, of production. And sometimes you need to have those conversations many times. And fundamentally, to create films that are going to be useful to the people in them and to the communities that those people are coming from. I mean, the definition of extraction is taking something from one place and then using it somewhere else. So what we're trying to do with these films and and the way I have always approached documentary is to use the films as a bridge between the communities that are represented. And it's not always a community that's defined by geography or identity. In the case of To the End, I would say, you know, we're looking at communities of policymakers and high level executives at nonprofits and policy writers and people who who are public figures. So they're not necessarily, uh, you know, marginalized communities, but a bridge between the, the world within the film and and the worlds of potential audiences outside it. We look at those audiences in a very wide-ranging way to make sure that the films are accessible not only to the people in, within them, but, but also people who have really different backgrounds as well. How would you characterize your own politics? Because you've mentioned Occupy, your protagonists in Knock Down the House are the left wing of the Democratic Party or outside the left wing of the Democratic Party. And also that's true with to the end as well. I mean, these are people that are important to change making in this country, right? But where where do you place yourself? Are you aligned with them or do you feel any distance from these protagonists? I feel a lot of solidarity with the protagonists that I've followed for all of my films. And maybe I should mention that into the end, you know, the four main people that we follow are Representative Ocasio-Cortez, who, of course, we worked with before she was in office when we followed her campaign in 2018. Varshini Prakash, who's the executive director of Sunrise Movement, a youth climate group. The third is Alexandra Rojas, the executive director of Justice Democrats, the group that originally recruited Ocasio-Cortez in back in 2016 and has been behind the elections of the group of progressive Congress, people known as the squad. And finally, Rihanna Gunn-Wright, who is a policy writer, one of the principal architects of the Green New Deal, which is, is a, a huge part of the, the focus of the film. Um, she is currently the director of climate policy at the Roosevelt Institute. So the film, really the jumping off place for it is in the fall of 2018, when there's the, the really shocking IPCC report that comes out from the UN stating that the world needs to make rapid, far-reaching and unprecedented changes in all aspects of society by the year 2030 in order to avoid the worst catastrophic effects of the climate crisis. Moreover, the 
real obstacle to achieving that is political will, not technology or finance, but political courage, political will. What was so interesting to me is, is looking at what's it going to take to create that political will. And I had already been working, of course, with Ocasio-Cortez and also Alexander Rojas from Justice Democrats on Knock Down the House. And so the concept for To the End kind of coalesced around all those folks that were in the beginning working on, on the Green New Deal back in 2018, 2019. Of course, now there are many more people working on the vision of the Green New Deal. And of course, there have always been more people working on climate policy. We couldn't possibly acknowledge everyone. But in terms of a label for my politics, I would say I, I'm, I'm very interested in multiracial democratic socialism. I'm interested in building broad coalitions that are rooted in the democratic socialist ideals of universal programs that are going to make ordinary people's lives better. Economic inequality has been out of control in this country for decades. It's what neoliberalism has achieved in, in this country. And I would love to see a new paradigm that was aligned around a vision of using the vast resources and power of the government to make people's lives better, solve the crises that are in front of us, and to do so in a way that it simultaneously includes universal programs that, that benefit everyone and targeted investments to redress the wrongs against specific groups that have been just really a curse word comes to mind. Screwed over. Yeah. I think there's really targeted needs we need to address there as well. So that's where I'd say I'm coming from with all this. Makes sense. One of the things that happened to me when I was watching this is because I've been doing a podcast for five and a half years and I've interviewed so many people in these movements and around them, there were a lot of familiar faces to me. Like Varshini had been on the podcast back in 2018 and Shoykat Chakrabarti, who was with AOC, had been on. And I followed it from a different angle, I suspect, than if I hadn't been talking to Bernie Sanders' campaign manager along the way, and as well as people who are in the more moderate wing of the Democratic Party, because I have a pretty wide breadth on that. One of the things I, that I follow is political entrepreneurship. And for me, you are, as a successful filmmaker who is doing political films in that category. And I know from friends who do this that it is a difficult thing to make documentaries, to find the funding for them, to pull off what you talked about, the permissions and just the buy-in from the subjects, as well as then to get people to see it or buy it or all of those things. At what point do you build a company to do this? And I know you sold knock down the house that's reported for for a, a large sum so tell me about like the transition into building a business around doing this very interesting work that you do yeah well it might actually be a little surprising to say that it's not all that different from how it was <laughs> 10 years ago we have a very small team our company is uh Myself and my husband, Robin Blotnick, my filmmaking partner, he co-directed The Hand That Feeds with me and was co-writer, editor, and a producer on both Knock Down the House and to the end. 
for both of the last two films, we also had additional producers. And in this case, for To the End, Sabrina Schmidt-Gordon has been just a crucial third member of the team the entire way through the process. But we're scrappy, you know, the three of us are doing the jobs that at a bigger company you might see 10 people doing. (laughs) And it's not just me saying that, like that's uh, other people that have worked with us and for us and then also gone on to work for bigger companies have (laughs) confirmed that that's the case. When my husband and I started working together, I was doing a lot of shooting. He was already doing a lot of editing. At that point in our careers, we were both sort of doing a bit of everything. He would also shoot. I would also edit. And because each of us specialized a little bit, we ended up kind of diverging and and focusing more professionally in in each of those areas. And and we went on through the production of Knock Down the House, you know, freelancing, myself shooting, and he editing for other people's films and for other projects. So I think there's a really core aspect of just being a jack of all trades. And this is how most people in documentaries start. Whenever I someone asks me to give advice to, to young students or to aspiring doc filmmakers, I always say, learn to shoot, edit, and ask people for money. Because if you want to direct, learn to do those things, because those are the things that, you know, maybe one day you'll pay someone to, to do those, but only if you first learn how to ask people for money. Learning how to do those things as at the the core of is is what it takes to get projects off the ground through those early stages when no one's going to believe in it but you unless you have a celebrity for a parent or something like unless you have like some personal connection to some topic that someone's that, that that's going to get the attention of of the media and distributors right off the bat like you're going to have to do a lot of the work and and that's really how we built our practice and even now it's it's not that different. I'm still shooting most of the material. We did hire a bunch of additional DPs, particularly Ray Whitehouse based in Washington DC, our second unit DP and for to the end and because of the pandemic, you know, there were times when I couldn't travel or it was just safer or made more sense for the budget to hire someone locally. So so there are a, a number of different folks that contributed, but I I always like to say I'm still carrying my own tripods, you know, it's not, (laughs) there's still a very grassroots element to this. There's always a, a strange way in which the production process kind of mirrors the story that you're telling in the film. At least that's been my experience. And in the case of Knock Down the House, we were this grassroots production, completely independent, doing everything, you know, it was just me and my husband and our toddler traveling around the country, getting the material we needed to make this film. One of the things I'm curious about is that partnership, because working that closely with a spouse is like, it's got to have an amazing upside in terms of ability to communicate at any hour of the day and to collaborate very closely. I know you know Lance and Brandon Kramer, who are brothers, who made another film in politics that I had on the show. But there's an extra wrinkle to living with your business partner. Can you tell me just a little bit about how does that been as as a partnership? Sure, sure. I was actually just talking about this with Brandon last night at the event. It's really common in documentary to have partnerships, whether it's people who are life partners as well, people who are siblings, 
or even just friends who become business partners, because particularly in the early stages of a project, but also many times all the way through the distribution process, it requires so much dedication. When you have spent the last four, three, five, seven, however many years it's been working on a documentary, and you know the story like the back of your hand, you know the subject matter, as well as the experts that you're following, maybe not as well as, as all of them, but like you really know it pretty well at this point, certainly better than any distributor is going to. So there's just so much that you end up being involved in that process. I think that's why it's so common to see these partnerships so that that burden can be shared. Of course, it has its downsides, you know, it's, it's tricky, but I think in a lot of ways, the benefits out, outweigh that. Well, you certainly pulled it off. I want to get to the new film, but I also want to ask you a little bit about Knock Down the House because I, I enjoyed that and it's also very connected. So there's the arc of that film, which ends up in the the victory of AOC and not some of the other candidates. But what was the arc for you of sort of coming up with the idea, making the correct contacts, making the movie, releasing the movie, getting the movie sold? Tell me the story of making that film? Well, it really started with a list I made the day after the 2016 election. We had a baby who was eight months old at the time. So I had been on maternity leave and hadn't managed to find work again yet. We were freelancers at the time. I'd been planning to take a bit of a break from political filmmaking at, at that point. But after that election, I decided that this was not the moment to take a break from political filmmaking. So I made a list of the types of topics I might be interested in and things that, that I could maybe contribute. And I had read about the project of, at, at that time, Brand New Congress that was started by Shoikat Chakrabarti, among who you mentioned having on the podcast. Zach Exley. People and like Zach that, yeah. Exley. Yeah. 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 Corbin Trent. The, the three of them had founded it. Very soon, it became overlapped with the Justice Democrats project. I reached out to them to see if they'd be willing to to have a documentary, follow them around. And through initial conversations with the, their core team, uh, ended up getting them on board. It was helpful that we already had the hand that feeds under our belt at that point, that we could show them a bit of what, what we were about as filmmakers. Thankfully, they trusted us. And we, I did interviews with either in person or over the phone with around 25 candidates and potential candidates to decide who to focus on for, for the documentary and, and doing shoots with multiple candidates where possible in order to sort of get to know as many of their slate as possible. But we wanted to focus it on that coordinated effort to run extraordinary, ordinary people for Congress all over the country in a way that was going to tackle money in politics because these folks would be rejecting corporate donations, but also addressing the inequities of representation in our politics. So really, really tying together that economic justice and, and racial and gender justice aspects of it. We decided who to focus on. At, at, by the time January 2018 rolled around, we thought that the project was not getting funding. None of our previous funders were coming on board. We decided to do a Kickstarter campaign just to see if we could raise a minimal amount of money to cover shooting around the primary season. It ended up working out and we, with a really skeleton crew and, and small budget. The idea was let's just 
film through the primary season and then we'll know by the end of that if the, the, the project is viable. The third primary was Ocasio-Cortez, which of course won and, and, and became this phenomenon literally overnight. And the project was in a whole new place. So of course there were more more funders interested. We did maintain our independence. We did not want to bring on any any funding that would commit us to a particular distribution stream or editorial input from anybody else at that point. And then uh, the Sundance Film Festival is kind of this magical ritual through which scrappy independent films like ours are sometimes converted into mass entertainment when they get picked up by distributors. And so we were very fortunate that that was the case with Knock Down the House and Netflix gave it a huge platform and a huge audience, which was what what we were looking for. We wanted it to be seen by as many people as possible and, and millions of people around the world have seen it, which is the most gratifying thing in the world as a filmmaker. I had talked to Corbin Trent actually about that moment where AOC wins and he goes from like searching for people to get press for her to turning away, well, to to having her engage in a zillion interviews, but also turning away some of them because the eyes of the whole country came on her. How did that affect you? I mean, you mentioned sort of like easier to get funding, but did you have to renegotiate the arrangement around that? Did anything change because suddenly she was big. And the most immediate level, no, because we had an agreement and, you know, she really appreciated that we'd been following her from the beginning. And I think there was all this new interest, but we were the very first media to pay attention to her campaign. And for a long time, there wasn't a lot. So having been there from the beginning was something that that I know she appreciated and a lot of the folks around her did as well. We did have an, an exclusivity ag- agreement that, that she wasn't going to be participating in any other documentaries that followed her in the same way. So that part of it stayed the same. And of, and of course, over time, you know, when someone gets that busy, it's it's kind of a, d- a different story. But uh, we had to go through uh, one more primary that year after her election, the Cori Bush primary, who, of course, won in 2020, but had lost in, in 2018. And once that election was over, we kind of had the contours of our story. So we really shifted focus to the edit at that point and began our push to get the film done earlier than we'd originally scheduled it so that it could come out in, at Sundance 2019. How did the sale of your film, besides like getting it out there, how did that change your business, your life, and your ability to make films subsequently? Well, at the most basic level, we were very economically precarious before that. And now we have some financial stability, which I couldn't be more grateful for because to be honest, not a day goes by that I'm not aware of what it used to be like, you know. We make these films to create tools for movements. We never got into this with any hope of commercial success or with any aspiration for that. I wanted critics to like it. I wanted my peers to to like it. And I wanted audiences to like it. But certainly never expected that moment where there would be an overlap between the mass market appeal and, and what what that those big companies were looking for and what we had to offer. So it's been surreal in a lot of ways to to have that happen. At the end of the day, like once the moment of knock down the house kind of died down and a lot has happened since then, like um, you know, we are we are happy to be able to continue making films from a 
a position of of being more secure. I mean, we have a child, uh, and it's 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 incredibly meaningful to to be able to do that, and and that's you know it it, it allows the maintenance of independence in a lot of ways. I really value that artistically and politically, that value of independence is what drives our work. It is extremely rare, vanishingly rare for a documentary film to have that level of success. Do you have any thoughts about like what could be changed in the world of funding and distributing films of that sort that would make it less the lightning in the bottle that you had with timing and subject so that lots of people could get their documentaries seen the way yours was? I think about this a lot and I talk about it a lot with with other documentary filmmakers. The system that we have for distribution right now is, I don't know if broken is the word, but anyone can see that it's incredibly stratified. Every year there's a few independent films, a few independently produced films that end up getting a big platform like that. And more and more, the marketplace is is flooded with films that are made by the large distributors from the beginning. A lot of them by really fantastic filmmakers, and some of those are really fantastic films, but I don't consider that to be an independent film per se, because if you're working with Netflix from the beginning, that's not the same thing as making it yourself and then having Netflix pick it up. So I think that there's a lot that needs to change, but I don't believe that the larger companies are going to just out of the goodness of their heart, start spreading the funding around to dozens or hundreds more deserving documentary films, which there are every year. There's many, many films that don't get as big a platform. But I I am really incredibly grateful that there still exist distributors like Roadside Attractions, an indie theatrical distributor that's putting out to the end uh, this Friday. So, you know, we have a different rollout this time around, but it's still a great release and we're we're thrilled to be working with them and fortunate to have distribution. So I, I think there's you know, there's a lot of different ways it can go, but I, for one, am really interested in uh, aspirationally the cultural policy side of things. I would love to see legislation that mandates a certain amount of support from the the bigger distributors, studios, streamers to independently produced work akin to the way a number of countries in Europe demand that for example, if a streamer is going to be available in that country, they have to do a certain percentage of programming with local production companies, right? So you have France doing that, for example, that that's mandated that a certain amount is, you know, 10, 20, 30% of, of the content. Netflix has to be producing a certain amount of French content in order to run in France. So I think that there are ways, I would love to see that happen. I mean, I don't expect that anytime soon in this country, but I, I that's sort of my grand vision for it. But I also think doc filmmakers need to band together. I w- I've been part of a, a group of, of documentary directors in IDD, independent documentary directors. It's been organizing since 2020. I've been a little less active recently when I'm getting my own film out, but other folks are, are, are still keeping that going to talk to each other and to share our experiences and to support each other through this process. Because when you're committed to producing films independently, there isn't always a place in the marketplace 
for what you do. And there's still a lot of really exciting alternative ways to get your film out there. And so until we have that uh, utopian dream of the National Film Board of the United States, we should be supporting each other as much as we can. So tell me about the founding story for what becomes to the end. How does that get going? What's the arc of creation there? Yeah, so we started out in in the fall of 2018. I think I mentioned possibly at the beginning um, that we were in post-production for Knock Down the House when that UN IPCC report came out that said that it's, it's going to be political will that is the linchpin of whether we can avoid the most catastrophic effects of the climate crisis. So since we'd already been exploring the process of what it takes to make politically impossible things possible in these insurgent campaigns, it really felt like a, a natural progression from there to ask what would it take to create political will for major climate policy in the United States. So the project became focused around four key players behind the Green New Deal. Of course, Sunrise Movement. I'm sure you followed this in your podcast if you've talked to all those folks. Sunrise Movement occupied Nancy Pelosi's office. Ocasio-Cortez came to that, to that event. It blew up as this viral thing and really launched the Green New Deal into the national conversation. But you were there to film that. So like you had organize this project well in advance of that becoming national? I was just at the beginning phases of starting to talk about creating this project at that time. So I am very sad to say that I was personally not in that room that moment. But we, we do have the archival footage, but I was filming like a week later with, with Ocasio-Cortez and, and Sunrise. We followed the the idea of the Green New Deal, this vision of decarbonization with equity and justice and jobs at the center. The idea was like, let's see how far we can get with this. And and of course, when the pandemic happened, that changed a lot of the the arc that that we'd been expecting to follow. We had a whole production schedule laid out for 2020, which which had to shift. What we ended up following was the ways in which our protagonists shifted the climate policy of the Biden campaign, which then became the Build Back Better agenda. And we followed the ways that through a continued inside-outside organizing strategy, including the progressive bloc in Congress that AOC was a part of, including the different tactics of civil disobedience and outside pressure that Sunrise was putting on throughout 2021, we really showed how that movement created the conditions of possibility for eventually the Inflation Reduction Act to pass in August of this year. Now, as anyone who follows your podcast probably knows, the Inflation Reduction Act is a far cry from the Green New Deal and even from the Build Back Better agenda. However, I think it's really important to acknowledge that a lot of the climate pieces that the movements did fight for did end up being included in the bill. Even though there are big disappointments with it, it is a huge step forward that would not have been possible without this movement. So we really show from the the up close and personal firsthand perspective of the four protagonists, what it's like to be involved in those intersecting movement lanes of of shifting that window of political possibility. Yeah. I I remember talking a few months ago to the guy who runs a a group called Eco-America which is a climate group. And he had read through the bill and had gone from being kind of distressed and pessimistic after it hadn't gone through to reading it and, and actually celebrating 
line after line of the, the accomplishments that are there. I understood that your movie was first kind of finished before that passage and then had to be changed after the surprise resurrection. Someone mentioned it as a zombie bill in the movie. Can you tell me about that change? Because you must have done that with some mixed emotion when you've gotten through a bunch of work and you have to go back and change some stuff, but it's in the service of actual like triumph on a fairly large scale in the thing that you had been following. Yeah, absolutely. So when the film premiered at Sundance in January of this year, it was just a few weeks after Senator Joe Manchin had killed the Build Back Better bill live on Fox News. And we were in post already. And and we'd been anticipating that something would pass because all of our contacts in Washington had were pretty sure that something would pass by the end of the year. Such a uh, disappointment for everyone who had been hoping something would pass. And and the film, there was one version of it, and there were a lot of things. I heard from someone last night who saw that version and really, you know, there was a part of it that she really liked that is, is now not in the film. So, that, you know, every version had its had its, uh, had its merits, but we always said, like, it'll be a good problem to have if they actually pass something and we have to go back into the edit. So we actually edited an intermediate version that we premiered at Tribeca Film Festival in June that was a little bit shorter and just a slightly different arrangement of of the events. And then uh, in August, when the bill passed, we knew this was a, a fantastic opportunity to, to really show the material gains. I mean, it, we, it was always really clear that these, that our, we had watched the story of the conversation changing and the window of possibility changing and, you know, what's considered acceptable climate policy to, you know, the vast majority of the Democratic Party shifting. But there's no substitute for having those really concrete wins to show why it's so powerful to engage with the democratic process in this way. As disappointing and imperfect as it can be at times, we're interested in this broad historical view of what does it take to change the course of history? Well, it doesn't happen overnight. And the way social movements work is to put forward these huge utopian visions of what it would look like to really solve the crisis at the scale of the crisis itself. And then through the process of, of doing that messy work of engaging in the power struggles and the political process and politics is for me, it's not about teams and, and, and winning and losing. It's about, you know, this is just the process through which we negotiate power in society. And, and if you want to really change things, it has to be part of the strategy. Of course, in terms of the climate crisis, there's so much work that that can be done and that is getting done and that needs to be done outside of the political system, in communities, in labor organizing. I'm not suggesting that electoral politics or legislative politics is the only way to engage, but it, it's got to be part of the picture for an issue this size. There's so much that is challenging about storytelling through the documentary film process because you are somewhat at the mercy of the material that happens as you go along. I mean, you make a lot of choices to be there at different times, to film different things, but ultimately you mostly can tell that story through what you've been there to follow. You have one film about an election, which has a certain kind of complexity 
and another film about a policy battle, which has a different kind, which is easier? What kind of thoughts do you have about how to tell a good story in those arenas and other related ones? Interesting question. To me, documentary, one of the the things I love about it is that it's a montage art form. There's an element of collage. Like when you go out shooting as I do, and I enjoy shooting, of course I have my shot list and I have my, my storyboard in my head and of the kinds of, of images that I'm hoping to capture and the kinds of moments I'm hoping to capture, but you never know what's going to happen. And then you get back into the editing room and you have to see what the footage is like and how it plays and what works and what doesn't. So, so there's limitations, as, as you say, built into the art form itself. And, and that to me is part of what I like about it because I just have always liked collage and there's something really creatively motivating about, you know, having those limitations and making it work with what you have and thinking about, well, if we just had this one other piece, like, would it work? And maybe we can go out and get it. Or maybe there's a piece of archival that will fill that. It's this creative tension between envisioning what you want and, and kind of writing it out. And we do a lot of writing treatments all the way through the process. And and I think every every verite story is different. I mean, elections have a very clear winners and losers. Usually, <laughs> the story of legislation is is more. You had a little bit of that with with Jessica Cisneros in this film, and it was almost a taste of a little of the knock down the house moment in this film. I thought. Sure, sure, yeah. I mean, we wanted to acknowledge that because Justice Democrats was such a big part of the movement for a Green New Deal, we wanted to acknowledge that the role of primary challenges in that, and and there is a, a, a huge role that they have played in, in helping shift the priorities of the Democratic Party o- over the past several years. But from, from a storytelling place, like we didn't want to do the same thing all over again. We didn't want to follow another election. I, I, I can't tell you how many election films I've been pitched over the last <laughs> several years as if I would want to do the same thing all over again. And, and creatively, I, I didn't want to, you know, I wanted to do something that would be different, that would be more complex, that would allow a little more exploration of nuance through that process. And I think, I think that's what we can do through the, the story of the policy. You also, it seems to me, chose to make the storytelling a work of advocacy not some other angle. You are on the side of the activists that you're filming. There are lots of other ways to tell the story that this went through. Was there any doubt in your mind about that angle? Well, I don't think of myself as an advocacy filmmaker. I think of myself as a filmmaker that makes stories that are accessible to a range of audiences that are exciting and that follow characters that go through really dramatic journeys and transformations over the course of the years that we're working with them. But it's in part to imagine you having filmed sympathetically the other side of this. Well, here's what I'll say about that. There's sort of the journalistic answer and there's the artistic answer. So journalistically, even when we started this project, there was no doubt about the scientific consensus, no doubt about you know, what 
the scientists were actually calling for. And as, as much as, as the Green New Deal was decried as naive on all sides of, of the aisle at that time, it was basically just what the UN scientists were saying needed to happen. And then that, it remains that. So, um, so to my mind, from a journalistic perspective, and a lot of people in, in climate have been saying this for a number of years, you know, to give the same level of voice to the voices that are uh, to, would not have been journalistically responsible. So then the other side of that is the artistic side, you know, because we do character-based stories where we are cinematically constructing POV, we are following this person through their daily life and doing interviews with them where they will explain and elucidate on what they're thinking and feeling through through those experiences, this combination of observational and, and the inter- interviews. We did interview, we interviewed some lobbyists for uh, that work with the American Petroleum Institute, and we interviewed Henry Cuellar, uh, Jessica Cisneros's opponent. But because none of them was willing to let us follow them around in the same way, it didn't make sense to just sort of pop in. It's not the style that we're working with to just like suddenly have an interview with the other side or whatever. So through the archival footage and through the actual, you know, events that happen in the film, like you can see who the opponents are and some of their arguments, you know, they give voice to a lot of their arguments, but we're not following them closely in the same way. Now, as someone with training in anthropology, if I were to make a film about people who disagreed with me politically. And I'm not opposed to that at all. I'd be very interested in doing that. I just have been pretty wrapped up with these projects the last couple of years. Um, I would feel a responsibility to those people to put forward the most honest representation that I could of what they felt they were doing. And, And whether you call that sympathetic or not, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think this is a portrait of what these people were doing, and, and that's how I'm looking at it. Let me just say this. I really like this film. What I like about it is it gives to a bunch of actors in our political process who, maybe with the exception of AOC, mostly don't get seen and are impactful. And I really enjoyed just the watching of the film. And I think we had, you know, earlier in this conversation, I I said something about this having an intention and you said, no, well, it's, it's meant to be a good movie. It's both. That's what I like about it is that you want to do both. Right. And that I, I think you've succeeded in that. What would you want people to take from it? You've seen a lot of people watch it. You've seen their reactions. What would you want them to see? Well, I'm really enjoying the reactions that people have been having to this new and final cut of the film. It's really amazing the way, because most people go into this, I think, knowing that some form of climate policy has passed. Um, It really resignifies everything that we follow through that process. So there's just so many moments that feel one way when nothing passes and they feel another way. When, when something does. And I think it, it will have that resonance in the future. There's actually a fair amount of humor <laughs> in the film. I mean, it's not a comedy, but it's great to watch it with audiences and see that people are laughing, you know, at different places. I want it to be an opportunity to process 
emotionally. The roller coaster of the last four years that we've all been on, that everyone has been on with the pandemic, and more specifically, everyone who's been following politics, maybe involved or at least hoping that some of these policies would succeed. It's been a real ride. And so I think the film offers kind of a long view of, of like some of the events that you might remember from the news. It gives the, the, the opportunity to really see how all of these events are connected. And it's not necessarily to say that any particular tactic has a direct exact outcome to the next thing that happens, but it is all part of the picture. I consider myself both a journalist and an artist. This type of film is a hybrid of, of journalism and art cinema. I'm certainly not the only journalist that has made a connection between the Green New Deal movement and the passage of the IRA. That's definitely out there. And we really want to challenge the narrative that the reason this big piece of legislation happened in Washington is simply because a few powerful people got together in a back room and decided to make it happen, you know, namely Manchin and Schumer and Biden. Of course, they played incredibly important roles. They have very important roles in our political system and lots of power. But what the movement did was to shift the terms of the debate, first of all, and really bring climate policy at large scale tailored towards a vision that is centered on jobs and justice to bring that to the center of the Democratic Party agenda, the center of the Biden administration priorities, and to keep it there. And they did so strategically over... It's, it's remarkable when you watch their planning meetings from 2019. And it's like, okay, we're going to need to do this, this, and this, and then we'll win. And it's like, well, they didn't do everything that they needed to do to win a full Green New Deal. And they acknowledge even in that same moment, like this is going to take at least 10 years. But they did do everything to some degree enough to get the first major climate policy in U.S. history passed. I want people to come away with the sense that individuals can be part of changing history by joining collectively in movements. And that's the continuity with my, my earlier work. And, and this is sort of a, a continued exploration of how ordinary people can be part of shifting those levers of power. And it's much more complicated when you start working inside of the Kafkaesque world of Washington, D.C. It's not as simple as winning an election. It's not as simple as winning a labor campaign, but all of all of that organizing comes to bear on it at, at the larger scale. And that is really the essence of how any social movement brings change in history. So I just want people to feel like they can be part, imagine themselves in new roles, being part of changing history and the future. Awesome. Where are you in the release of this film? What are you having to do right now? And what are your goals for it? Yeah, well, the film is coming out in over 120 theaters across the country. You can go to our website, to theendfilm.com to see where it's playing and hopefully catch it in the theater. The film will you know, later be on the TVOD platforms and, and eventually it'll, it'll be on Hulu, but please come see it in the theater if, if you can. It's really an amazing thing. As a filmmaker, the, the opportunity to have 
our films shown in cinemas where people can have a collective experience watching it on the big screen is is very much the essence of, of why we, we make this type of work. And then it will be available for community and educational screenings in January as well. So if any of your listeners has a group or a if anybody's a professor in college or high school teacher or um, knows anybody who might want to use it uh, for any type of organizing or education work, uh, it will be available for that as well. You know, I wanted to ask you why the title. What, yeah, could, the title the title really has a few uh, sort of poetic resonances for us. I mean, throughout the the filmmaking process, we were exploring this juxtaposition between the dystopian narratives that climate scientists are telling us about the, the future that's coming our way without drastic action and the utopian visions that activists and organizers have to devise to imagine alternative futures and to begin to build them. So on the one hand, you know, to the end, everyone's always talking about the end of the world and the idea of apocalypse, certainly with respect to climate change, but it's almost become a buzzword since the pandemic. Beyond that, to the end suggests fighting to the end. And ultimately, there is no end. The point is that this is ongoing and the way the film wraps up, we make that very clear that, that this is not the end of anything. It's really just the beginning of the next phase of dealing with the climate crisis as a society. I suspect it's also not the end of you as a filmmaker. Can you see past the release of this to what you want to do next? Well, I think I mentioned my child was eight months old when we started making Knock Down the House and this project did overlap with Knock Down the House. So I am very determined to take a little bit of a, a break this time and come up for air at the end of this release. And we've got a big impact campaign that has to get off the ground and a lot of amazing folks working on that. So there is a lot to do right now. I definitely see past it. I'm very excited to come up with new ideas, but just in the early, early developmental stages of thinking about next projects right now. Is there a question that I should have asked you that I didn't? I don't think so. This was great. We covered a lot of ground and I appreciate all the questions about the deeper background and all of that. Yeah. Well, it's great to talk to you. Anything else you want to say? I don't think so. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the conversation. I do too. That was Rachel Lears talking about the film to the end she's at to the end film.com this is nathaniel g perlman with the great battlefield podcast you can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for great battlefield in places where podcasts are found the great battlefield is now part of the democracy group podcast network visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement you can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.